Friends, we've been in this sermon series called Way, Truth, and Life, and today we're finishing it up, and we've been exploring how we experience grace. We experience grace in lots of different ways. And, and I just want to quickly recap where we've been. We've looked at this experience of, of seeking grace or provenient grace. This is grace that seeks us even before we come to Christ. Even before we make a decision to follow Jesus, God is at work in His grace, wooing us and calling us to Himself. And that culminates in a moment of, of saving grace or justifying grace, where we turn from one way of living and we embrace a new way of living. And God makes it just as if. He justifies it. He makes us just as if we had never sinned. And then there is this experience of sanctifying grace. It's this idea that we are just committed to that says God not only wants to save you from your sins, God not only wants to uh, ensure that you have a place in heaven with him when you die, but God wants you to be an agent of bringing heaven to earth while you are alive. And this is through sanctifying grace. This is as the people of God become more like Jesus every day, God's sanctifying grace is at work uh, all throughout our lives. And today, we're looking at this intermediate period, which is quite a long time for a lot of us, from the moment we trust Christ for salvation to the moment we die or, or, and are with God in heaven. What is it that God is doing in that, in that time period? It's sufficient grace that He gives us. It's sustaining and sufficient grace that He gives to us for life's journey. And so I want you to hear this good news, that grace is available to you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what your experience of life is today, God's grace and His presence is available for you. I shared this in my weekly newsletter. Uh, I'll share it again here this morning, but there's, a, there's an episode from my growing up years that I'm not real proud of. And, well, there's a lot, actually. But I remember this one experience where I went uptown on a Friday night. I was a newly licensed driver. And in Orangeburg, South Carolina, there really was one thing to do on Friday night. And you went uptown, and you rode John C. Calhoun Drive, which was about a mile stretch from the Hardee's at the bottom of the hill to the Burger King at the top of the hill. And um, so I went up there one Friday night, and I did a few laps at the Strip, as it was called, and uh, had my dad's um, uh, Chevrolet S10 pickup. And uh, it was my first time to get to go ride uptown. And... Uh, on the way home, I noticed that the gas gauge was, it was, well, it was, I'd like to say it was a little bit above E, but it was actually below E. Like it had, it had bottomed out, and it was below E. But I thought to myself, man, you know, if I can get home, if I can just get home, then when my dad takes his truck back out, he'll be the one to have to fill it up with gas. And this $5 that I have in my wallet, I can keep for for, for whatever else I want to use it for. Um, and, uh, and so I was pressing the limits of uh, the S10's fuel efficiency that evening, and about two miles from the house, ran it out of gas. Pulled off to the side of the road. I was out in the middle of nowhere in the country on my way home, and I had no other choice but to, to walk home. And I finally get home about midnight. Of course, I didn't have a cell phone and my parents are worried sick, and they're just about to call the police to tell them to come search John C. Calhoun Drive for their son. He's probably, you know, dead somewhere, they, they, they thought. Um, but I, I get home, I tell dad what has happened, and I remember him saying, son, 
The E on the dashboard, it does not mean enough. It means empty. And you, <laughs> you have to put gas in a car if you want to drive it. And I would say the opposite to you. Like if you feel like you're running on E today, if you feel like your life is empty, Jesus is enough. Jesus and his grace is enough. And Jesus walks with you through every season of life. Ernest Hemingway was once challenged, and he was prone to accept wagers. But someone once challenged Ernest Hemingway to write a short story in six words or less. And so, being who he was, he accepted that challenge. He said, I can write a short story in six words or less. And so he grabbed a napkin and took out a pen, and he wrote what we know now today as a six-word saga. He wrote on the napkin, for sale, comma, baby shoes, comma, never worn. It was a six-word saga indeed. It had everything a short story would have. It had a, a problem, it had a plot, it had a resolution, all in six words. A tragic story, but a story nonetheless. And today, if you were to take out a napkin and if you were to scratch out your six-word saga, what would it be? What is it that you have experienced in life that, that could be characterized in a six-word saga? Uh, maybe your six-word saga is, there's been a terrible accident. I'm leaving. The marriage is over. Your position is no longer needed. The cancer isn't responding to treatment. You are not able to conceive. Six-word sagas. Here's a rose off the casket. If you were to take the, the tragedy that you've experienced, the adversity that you have experienced, and put it into six words, what would it be? And for many of us, we are living our six-word saga right now. We are in the midst of it right now. And Jesus has a word for us. It's a word of sufficient grace. It's a word from the Beatitudes that says, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are living six-word sagas, for they will be comforted. As you lean into the Beatitudes there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, there's several statements that Jesus makes. Blessed are the... And here he says, blessed are those who mourn. And we have to step back a little bit and say, what is Jesus really saying? Is Jesus saying that, that we should be happy in our grief? That when we're in the midst of a six-word saga, we should put on a happy face like we're blessed and everything's okay? That just doesn't sound right. It, it doesn't sound right to say that it's a blessing to be a widow raising four children. It doesn't sound right to say it's a, it's a blessing to lose your job and count down the days until you lose your house. It's, it, 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 it's, it's weird. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's ludicrous to say it's a blessing to watch a parent do the slow fade into the fog of Alzheimer's. These things are not blessings. We shouldn't be happy about these things. These are not things that we would normally consider as blessings. 
And the Lord reminded me of a true definition of, of what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes and what it means to be blessed. It wasn't too long ago uh, I was meeting with our Bentonville City Council. And the, the mayor and a few of the council members have asked pastors to meet with them before their meetings and to pray with them. And so uh, I took my turn and, and I met with uh, our mayor and the city council and and we begin to, and I begin to lead them in prayer. And, and that prayer throughout the years for me has is, is generally been about the same, that, that God would give our leaders wisdom, that God would be with them. And then at some point in the prayer, I will thank God for the blessings that we enjoy here in the city of Bentonville, Arkansas. And it's pretty obvious. We experience some things that most people in the country don't get to experience. Think about the restaurants that we have and the amenities that we have and the fact that our median income is 40% higher than the rest of the state of Arkansas and the, just the things that are available to us at our fingertips and the prosperity that is all around us. And so we paused to thank God for the blessings that we experience living in this part of the world. But as I said that, I felt the Lord checking me. I felt the Lord... I felt the Lord saying that, that maybe I was not really understanding what it meant to be blessed. That maybe there's a definition of blessing that is beyond material prosperity. And I just, I just felt checked. Now, it wasn't like I said anything blasphemous. Okay? It wasn't like I said, you know, Lord bless the St. Louis Cardinals or, or anything like that. But it was as if God was saying to me, you need to think about what it means to be blessed. You need to put that in, in proper perspective. If you didn't have the upper level income, if you didn't have the home that you have, if you didn't have the amenities that you have, if you didn't live in relative ease and convenience compared to other places in the world, would you still consider yourself blessed? Would you be thankful for the air in your lungs? Would, be, would you be thankful for the simplicity of God's blessings that I have given to you. And, and that was an important reminder because we're, we have to remember what Jesus said somewhere else. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. That's not an if statement. It's a, it's a for sure statement. It's not an if, but when. In this life, you will have trouble. And then Jesus goes on there in John's gospel to say, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. I have conquered the trouble that you will have. So fear not, I am with you in the midst of your six-word saga. God is present and God is active in what you're going through right now. As the six-word saga of your life is playing out right now, God is with you and sufficient grace is there to help you in the midst of this. So uh, Amy read for us this passage. It's a very famous passage from 1st, 2 Corinthians 12. And there... Paul is describing what we know as a thorn in the flesh. And the exact details of this thorn are, are lost to biblical history. And we've speculated as to all kinds of things as to what that might be. But I want to back up and, and let's, let's put that verse in its proper context. Let's read everything that Paul is saying there uh, to the church at Corinth and the things that he's saying to us. So verse 1 begins like this. I must go on boasting, although... There is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, I'll boast about a man like that, and this is Paul referring to himself in third person. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, church, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Such a powerful passage. So much truth here. Let's start by by how Paul gets into this. He describes this experience of a third heaven. That's a very interesting detail. He says that he has this revelation. He sees things and what he describes as as the third heaven. And I want to set one thing straight as as we dive into this. There are not different levels of heaven. It's not as if some of you are pegged for this entry level. Uh, Some of you are going to find your way in this kind of second, kind of intermediate level. And then those of you who volunteer in the nursery, you're in the third level. You're in the third heaven. You're there with Paul. Although, if if it will make you volunteer in the nursery, then yes, there are levels to heaven and you need to see Pastor Diane so you can punch your ticket to the third heaven, okay? And that goes for youth workers and all the things that it takes to disciple our kids effectively. Yes, there is a third. No. No, there's not. There's not different levels of of heaven. What Paul is talking about is he's had this experience. Uh, He's had this special revelation. And this is not uncommon for Paul. In fact, the, the other apostles that were sent after the day of Pentecost, they, they knew Jesus physically. What qualified them as an apostle at that time was they were one of Jesus' original disciples, and they knew Jesus physically, and they were witnesses to the resurrection. And so they were sent by the Spirit. But Paul has this special thing going on. We read about it in Acts 9, where he encounters the resurrected Christ in a special way. And, and Jesus appoints him as apostle to the Gentiles. And so, so Paul's saying, I've had a special revelation. It, it's not uncommon. It's something that, that Paul experienced uh, before. And there's no reason to think that God would not allow him to experience it again. So he's received this special revelation. Um, but he makes the point that this special revelation, this thing that was revealed to him, should not be a source of boasting. And I think it's important 
to just pause here, and I just have to confess a little of my own humanness with this. Like, um, I, I, you just need to know that if if I have this kind of experience that Paul had, this special revelation, I just got to tell you, you'll be the first to know. Like on a Sunday morning, it will be it will be the subject of of whatever whatever uh, we do here in this time together, because it would be pretty cool to have this kind of experience that, uh, that Paul had. You'll be the first to know. You know, I might even write a book. I was kind of imagining what it would be like to have this experience, and I'm playing around with a few book titles. I think I might call it like The Third Heaven, How I Experienced It and Why You Didn't. I, maybe something like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it'll sell or not. But, but no, what, what Paul is saying, and, and the American church needs to hear this, is, is that... Uh, let's not commercialize Christianity. Let's not monetize Christianity. Let's not not commercialize these experiences and boast about them. Um, This is not how someone should receive a gracious gift from God. So the special revelations and the things we have from God, these are not things that we should boast about. In fact, what Paul says is, even though I have reason to boast, even though I've had this experience, I've also been subject to the frailty of human life. I've also been subject to suffering. I've also been subject to weakness. My experience of the special revelation from God does not exclude me from the frailty and the suffering of life. And so he talks about this thorn. I was given a thorn in the flesh, something that reminded him, even as a recipient of special revelation, that he was subject to frailty of life. People have speculated what this thorn is. They've said maybe it was a physical illness. People have even said uh, maybe it was Paul's baldness. It's believed that Paul uh, was follically challenged. Um, People have said maybe he suffered from epilepsy, uh, loss of eyesight. Uh, I found this cartoon that speculates one theory, and uh, I think there's probably some credence to this. This definitely would be uh, a thorn in the flesh. If, if you were chained in prison and, and you had to spend your days with this guy, um, you might describe that experience as a thorn in the flesh. <laughs> but whatever it is, whatever this thorn is, we know, whatever this thorn is, we know that he begged God to take it away. God, would you take away this physical ailment? God, would you take away this suffering? God, would you take away this this pain that I'm experiencing? And essentially, Paul was praying to God, change my circumstances. Move in your power. Do what only you can do. I want a supernatural miracle. God, I want you to change my circumstances. But God did not. Verse 9 is the culmination of this autobiographical information that that Paul shares, where Paul finally resolves to trust in what God has said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your six-word saga. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so if I'm going to boast, therefore, if I'm going to brag, if I'm going to say anything, 
I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses because when I reveal my weaknesses, it is an opportunity for Christ's power to be revealed in, in richer and fuller ways. I want Christ's power to be revealed in me through my weaknesses. And the, ver- and the, the passage just gloriously concludes, for when I am weak, you see, with Jesus, that's when I'm strong. When I'm weak, when I'm empty, Jesus is enough. Sufficient grace is there for me. Sufficient grace is available to us in abundant supply. Paul found his weakness transformed by Christ's strength. And I'm glad that there is a place in the people of God. That's us today. This church. I'm glad that there is a place among the people of God where those who mourn, where those who are sad, where those who are going through thorns in the flesh, they can gather and they can be welcomed and they can find sufficient grace because so often grief is associated with weakness. And because of that, when we're going through pain, when we're going through suffering, we conceal our grief. We hide our suffering. We are afraid to reveal it and become vulnerable to those around us. Maybe it's something about just being American. Maybe it's something about just how we're wired, but we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? How you doing today? Doing fine, doing fine. How's everything with you? Good, good to go pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're afraid to become vulnerable to those around us. So often, grieving is perceived as an inconvenience or maybe it's a weakness. In fact, I discovered that there's a day on the calendar, I don't know who made this up, the same people that make up all the other silly holidays that I see celebrated on Facebook. But at some point this year, there's National Get Over It Day. Certainly inspired by the Eagles song, I would imagine. National Get Over It Day. And there's resources where you can download all kinds of things to help you get over whatever you're going through. And it's just steeped with all kinds of self-help stuff and, and different strategies and different things you can do personally without the aid of a community of people, certainly without the aid of God's sufficient grace in your life, where you can just get over it. You can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You can just keep on moving along. And I just would say to you that this, this, this God that is here with us today, this God that sent His one and only Son in the, in, in, to, to die for our sins and was resurrected to new life, God doesn't want you to get over it. God wants you to know that He's with you in whatever you're going through. God wants you to know that you don't have to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. He wants you to know that, that this valley of the shadow of death that you're going through You do not walk alone. God is with you. The chronic pain that you're suffering, you don't have to bear that alone. You bear it with a God who has borne pain on your behalf and has conquered it through the resurrection. So it's not a call to get over it. It's a call to allow the strength of God to to be made manifest in your weaknesses. God's power and His sufficient grace is available to us. And sometimes we are left with no other option but to mourn and to grieve. 
and to just accept that there's, just, there's a thorn in our life. And as much as we want this thorn to change, we want our circumstances to change, what God is saying today is, I may not change your circumstances, but I promise I will be with you. And along the journey of grace, mourning brings us to the place of blessing. When we, when we actively mourn, when we actively recognize our need and depend upon Christ's strength, this is how we come to a place of blessing. There's lots of things that we go through, probably something you're going through right now, and I would just say to you, there's not a greeting card for what you're going through. I was reading or I heard about a, um, an author, and, uh, and she was recently diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was just shocking to her that she would be going through this. And um, her friends heard about her diagnosis. And they meant the best. They, they, they certainly they had the best of intentions. But as she's processing this diagnosis, as she's processing what the, the new normal means for her, as she begins to take the steps forward as to what it means to live with this kind of diagnosis, uh, someone sent her a card. It was a well-intentioned card. It was designed to acknowledge her pain. The card was designed to say, hey, I'm here with you. But there just wasn't a card for you've recently been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. The only cards we have are get well soon cards. And so she received a get well soon card and she appreciated the sentiment. But as she read the words get well soon, she was reminded that I might not. So she teamed up with a friend who wrote greeting cards. And they said, maybe we should write cards for things that aren't normally acknowledged. For all the things in life where there's not a good card for this, maybe we should write some cards. Maybe we should give people a vehicle to acknowledge others' suffering. And maybe we should write some cards as a way to say to those who are suffering, I'm with you. I'm here with you in the midst of this. And so they begin to, to write a series of cards, and they've been wildly popular. They develop cards for infertility, cards for incurable diseases, uh, cards for chronic pain and chronic illnesses, and a host of other issues that we, we just typically ignore because there just isn't a good card for our six-word sagas. And most of these cards... Um, uh, they're, 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 some, sometimes they're kind of comical. I especially appreciated this one. I want to share it with you. It says, Please let me be the first to punch the next person who tells you everything happens for a reason. <laughs> if you've ever said everything happens for a reason, I hope you hear me saying, I know your heart. <laughs> I know your heart. I, 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 know your, your, I know your heart. You're, you're, you're trying to comfort someone. You're trying to think of the words to say. I think as the people of God, we need to recognize we sort of throw that around, sort of flippantly. We especially throw it around when, when, when we're not as, as well acquainted with whatever tragedy someone is going through. And, and I just want to cautious us as to how flippant we just, we, we just kind of throw that around. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason. 
Maybe there's a better way to approach that, but, but here's what's going on for us who are trying to do the comforting. So when our friends are experiencing loss, when our friends are experiencing suffering, we, we take one of two positions. One position is we think we have to be like Dr. Phil, Oprah, and Gandhi, like all wrapped up into one person. We have to find like the perfect thing to say. And, and so that usually comes out as, well, hey, everything happens for a reason. So that's one position we take. And the other position we take is the complete opposite. We're overwhelmed by the fact that we can't be Dr. Phil, we can't be Oprah, and we can't be Gandhi. We certainly can't be all three of those people wrapped up into one person, and so we don't say anything. Well, let's give them space. Well, I don't know what to say. Should I text? Should I call? Should I email? I don't know the answer to that, but what I do know is you should not do nothing. Even the imperfect thing you do to acknowledge someone in their suffering and in their grief is better than doing nothing. And maybe the best thing is when the people of God show up on a doorstep with a casserole. And it's not because the casserole is that good but it's because someone showed up. It's because someone showed up and, and said, I'm here. I don't have an answer for your six-word saga, but I'm here, and I represent a community of people that are here, and I represent a community of people that remind us that God is with us and His sufficient grace is available to us in our six-word sagas. God is with us in our grief. And friends, no matter what you're going through, whatever your six-word saga is today, I think we have a choice. It comes down to a choice between are we going to reveal our pain? Are we going to reveal our suffering? Are we going to reveal our weakness so that Christ's power might be made manifest in our life? Or will we conceal it? Or will we continue to manage it on our own? Or will we continue to put on a smile and say everything's okay? There's an amazing moment that Jesus has with a person in Mark chapter 3. Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's on a Sabbath. And there are religious leaders there. And someone walks into this gathering of the, the people of God on a Sabbath. And they are... Disabled. They have a condition that Mark only describes as a withered hand. Now, here's what you need to know. Here's a little bit of the backstory about having a disability in the first century. It was commonly believed that, that if you had a disability, like a withered hand, or you were unable to walk, or your, your vision was impaired, if you had something like that, it was commonly believed that your parents must have sinned. If you were born that way, it's because your parents sinned, and God's judging you for their sin. Or if, if that happened to you, or if you had some kind of accident, or you had some kind of condition that you can't control, well, that's obviously God judging you for something that you've done wrong. Now, Jesus corrects that in John chapter 9. We know that's not true. But that's what was commonly believed. And so in this gathering of the people of God on a Sabbath, walks this person with this disability, has this shriveled hand. And what we're left to infer is that 
that's the kind of disability that it's easy to hide. You can't really, if you can't walk, you can't really, can't really hide that. If your vision's impaired, that's, that's hard to, to hide as well. But, but if you have a shriveled hand, if, if there's some birth defect or some accident that you've had, it's pretty easy to take that hand and just to stick it into your cloak. No one has to know that you have this disability. Nobody has to know that you have this, this thing going on in your life. You can conceal that pretty easily. But everybody knew this person. They knew he, he didn't have a job like everybody else because of his condition. I mean, everybody knew what was going on. And so the religious leaders, they sort of put Jesus to the test. Is Jesus going to heal this person? He's healed a lot of other people. Is he going to heal this person? Is he going to do it on the Sabbath? And Jesus has compassion on this man. And there's a lot of ways Jesus could have healed him. I think Jesus could have walked up to him discreetly and just sort of touched his cloak where he had his hand concealed and he could have healed it. Could have gone down like that. But here's what Jesus chooses to do. In the midst of the religious leaders, in the midst of the people that were gathered there, he looks at the man with a shriveled hand and he says, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. And the man had a decision to make. Do I reveal this symbol of suffering? Do I reveal this weakness? This, this thing that this entire community of people associate with sin and they associate it with, with unfaithfulness and, and they associate it with everything that's wrong. Do, do, I, do I reveal that? Do I stretch that out? Do I bring that embarrassment on myself? And what we've learned about grace, it's so significant the way Jesus goes about that because what we learned about grace is that we're called to cooperate with God's grace in our life. And so the man with this condition has the choice to cooperate with what God is wanting to do in his life. Jesus is there. Jesus is wanting to heal. Jesus is wanting to perform a miracle. And so he says to the man, cooperate with what I want to do in your life and stretch out your hand. And the text tells us that he does. In faith, he believes that, that Jesus can heal him. And so he takes this thing that was a source of shame for him and he stretches it out. And in that moment, his hand is restored. He recovers full functionality and he's healed. He receives sufficient grace for his life. Church. Those of you in the midst of a six-word saga, stretch out your hand. And reach out to Jesus today. Reach out to Jesus because what I believe Jesus wants to do is he wants to transform your six-word saga to a six-word testimony. I believe he can do that. I believe he wants to do it now. What if your six-word saga was transformed into this six-word testimony? God will not leave me alone. Wouldn't that be a great testimony to walk out of here with today? Or blessed are those who are mourning. In your grief, you can walk out of here knowing that you're blessed by sufficient grace. Here's a six-word testimony. All the weary come to me. Cast your anxiety on the Lord. And maybe the best one of all, church, my grace is perfect 
in weakness. My grace is perfect in weakness. The worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a final song today. And I'm going to invite Pastor Penny and Pastor Aaron. They're going to come and and they're going to stand here at these altars. We have at the front of our sanctuary altars that are designated places of prayer. And these are places where we can kneel and we can pray and we can receive sufficient grace. And what I've asked Pastor Aaron and Pastor Penny to do is to, to we, I want to have a service in which we anoint with oil today. Let me tell you about this anointing with oil. It is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. I just think we need those things. That's exactly what a sacrament is when we receive the Lord's Supper. It's a physical reality of a, of a spiritual thing God is doing. And today, if you're in the midst of a six-word saga, and you would like to see it transformed into a six-word testimony, I invite you to come and to kneel at these altars of prayer. And Pastor Penny or Pastor Aaron, they're going to come and they're going to anoint you with oil. As a, as a symbol of what God is doing in your life, as a symbol of sufficient grace. And maybe your prayer is for healing today. Maybe your prayer is for comfort. Maybe your prayer is just for a greater experience of sufficient grace. But as you receive that oil today, what I want you to know is that God is with you. And His power is made perfect in your weakness and whatever you're going through, you don't have to go through alone. God is with you, and he's faithful. And so, friends, would you stand? As you come to the altars today, I think the only request I would make would be to let's wear our masks. And so as we come to the altar today to receive anointing with oil, just know that God is here. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Friends, as the worship team sings, uh, these altars are open. We invite you to come. Let's pray together.